1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and a planet. I'm Kevin Fulton. I'm your podcast host and a professor in plant biology. And it's coming to you today from Archer, Florida at the Exotics Farm. And today we're going to talk about domestication, again, of a unique Vegetable, And when you ask people what their favorite vegetable is, very few people say the onion. However, it's hard to think of a vegetable or a plant item for that matter that has a more uh, ubiquitous place in our culinary uh, universe. It's, you know, the, the powders, the, uh, the, the, the basic parts of onion are an important flavor in many different things that we consume. And I think about just about everything I cook starts with chopping up an onion. So I wanted to pursue where did it come from? How did we get it? Where is it going? And so we're speaking with Dr. Mike Havey. He's a, uh, he works with the USDA Agricultural Research Service in Madison, Wisconsin, and also is a faculty member in the Department of Horticulture. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Havey. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, this is really cool. I think I actually got to see you give a talk once, and I can't remember where it, is, where it was, but I think, it. What, where, did you ever give a talk in Savannah, Georgia at the National Onion Association meeting? Um,
2: yes, I did. About four or five years ago, we had a joint meeting between the National Onion Association and then all the research community, and I think we met there.
1: Yeah, yeah. That seem, I seem to remember that. Yeah, and I, and I think I may have asked you at the time to if you'd be a guest on the podcast. <laughs> it just takes time. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about onions. You know, like I mentioned before, it has such an important culinary value. Where did it come from? And do natural populations still exist? Yeah.
2: So the onion, like many of our grain and vegetable and fruit crops, was domesticated in Central Asia, uh, specifically Iran, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, that area. Um, And it spread from there uh, around the world and is now consumed and produced on every continent except Antarctica. There are still, uh, the most closely related wild species is called Allium vavilovi and that grows naturally still in the Da region, which forms the border between Northern Iran and Southern Turkmenistan. And so the wild relative still exists there, probably was in prehistory was more widely distributed, but um, uh, we can still find um, Allium Vavilovi in that area.
1: Oh, vavalovi that obviously was uh, a discovery or at least a characterization by Vavilov.
2: Um, the, the species is named after him. Um, the okay. Allium taxonomus in the former Soviet Union uh, named this wild species after Nikolai Vavilov. B- B-
1: Okay, so I, I remember seeing so much about his, um, his expeditions into places like <laughs> Iran or Turkmenistan that he was uh, you know, prolific in that area, so, uh, but that makes sense too. Um, when you talk about the species of wild onion, I know that even here in Florida, there are things that they call a Florida wild onion. And, and Chicago is named by, from an indigenous people's term for stinky onion. So are these related to the major culinary onions or are these some kind of distant relative? These, uh, uh,
2: well, first of all, the alliums, the, the genus of onion is um, uh, distributed around the Northern hemisphere. Um, and here in North America, most alliums have uh, seven chromosomes, whereas onion and garlic and chive have a basic chromosome number of eight. So they're distant relatives. And, um, And uh, we can't cross them with onion, um, but they do uh, have unique flavors and in many places they're still collected and consumed, um, but really are very distantly related to the onion that we know.
1: Have there been any efforts that you're aware of to domesticate those regional uh, varieties that are growing, the seven chromosome ones that are growing around say the native United States?
2: Yeah, you do find them showing up sometimes in farmers markets, different species Uh, out west in the uh, uh, California and the Rockies. There are numerous alliums that that can be collected and consumed. But to my knowledge, there's no effort to really um, breed them and and, uh, develop some unique flavors or, or, or production characteristics from them. So they're primarily just collected.
1: So when you talk about the the actual allium that was used that is the forefather of the modern onion, who was really the first to domesticate that?
2: Um, They would have been probably nomadic tribes in Central Asia. um, Most of the Central Asian republics of the former Soviet Union, uh, onion and many of its wild relatives naturally exist. And um, probably these people's, started collecting them and, and eating them initially, and then ultimately, I feel, um, asexually propagated them, much like you would a shallot today, break apart the basal plate and plant it. And then I think probably seed production and conscious breeding occurred later. But it would have been nomadic tribes in Central Asia tens of thousands of years ago. <laughs>
1: Did they mostly use it for food flavoring, or were there other potential uses of an onion?
2: Now, that's an interesting question that has been quite a uh, topic of debate. A couple of things may have played an important role in the domestication of onion. One of them is, is that um, because it was, uh, in its wild form, it's a perennial, it grows every year, it sprouts very early in the spring. And many of your listeners may grow chives and uh, the green um, leaves of chives come out very early and in wild alliums, that's true as well. It's not a good source of vitamin C, but it does have vitamin C. So I think you could think about uh, nomadic tribes taking advantage of that early green growth of the leaves in the spring as a source of vitamin C and potentially other vitamins. In flavorings, but the taste is also has to have an effect, I think. And I wonder if it maybe wasn't important to mask off flavors, maybe from some rancid meats or um, um, different foods that may not have, uh, have an off taste, and that maybe the early uh, domesticators used that strong sulfur pungency flavor compounds in the alliums to their benefit.
1: It's uh. it also doesn't it store a little bit better than most uh, vegetables and fruits. If you wanted to have some sort of fresh something to take with you as a nomad, as a nomad, <laughs> uh, you know, the onion kind of fits the bill. Doesn't it store really well?
2: Oh, um, yes, it does. And so it would be very much, I think like what we would do today with a shallot, that it would be produced, stored under a cool condition. Um, and, um, uh, broken apart or chopped up uh, during the winters to to serve as a flavorant or uh, not a great source of vitamin C, but as I said before, uh, probably offered some benefits there. And so, yes, I think they probably were collected and stored and eaten over the winter.
1: Well, you talked about, you know, we spoke about onions, but you've also brought up things like chives and shallots, and I can think of red onions and all of these other variants of we know what we call just a generic onion and are all of these variants from a common lineage that have had different selection pressures, are they the same species or are these all different domestication events, maybe from different parts of the world?
2: Yeah. So a garlic chive onion or all different species, independent domestication events, all of which were in that central Asian region. But when you're within the bulb onion, red onions, uh, red, yellow, white onions, that's all the same thing. Shallots, uh, bunching onions, green onions, that's all Allium sepa. And so they would all trace back to domestication events from a a progenitor type like Allium babelope.
1: Yeah, we grow something uh, called the Egyptian walking onion. Is that one of those bulb onions as well? Now, that's an interesting one, and there's quite a story behind
2: that. So um, the Egyptian walking onion is actually an interspecific hybrid between Allium sepa, the bulb onion, and Allium fistulosum, which is the Japanese bunching onion, and which is commonly grown in China, uh, Korea, and Japan. And those two species meet, meet, and they have uh, sympatric growing areas. Uh, in Uzbekistan, in that region. And that's a a natural hybrid between those two species. And why do we call it Egyptian walking onion? Well, because it's an interspecific hybrid, it's uh, sterile, does not produce seeds. But when the onion flowers, the walking onion flowers, in the, uh, um, on the uh, flowering stalk, the, uh, uh, at the top, there are no, no flowers are very few flowers, but they're small bulbs produced. So, and then when that flowering stem falls over, then those small bulbules start growing and the onion walks across your garden about oh, three feet a year um, because they shoot up a flowering scape, it falls over, they grow, shoot up a flowering scape. But that's an interspecific hybrid between two allium species, one of which is the bulb onion.
1: Oh, well, that's really cool. I say, I'm glad I asked because that's a really interesting plant that we grow here. But, you know, it's a good example of how onions must have lots of unusual stories or lots of unusual uses in medicine or culture. Um, certainly, you know, garlic to fend off vampires and stuff. But, but what's a really interesting story around, say, onions?
2: Well, um, just like garlic and onion warding off vampires, which obviously I I don't really think is true, there are stories that float around the internet that are are false. Um, (laughs) One of them that I I get probably two emails a year from people who read on the internet or read in some old literature that if you have the flu and you cut onions and uh, put them in your bedroom at night that it helps you get over the flu. And uh, um, there's no evidence for that. Now it is true that when you cut dice Dyson onion, you get uh, uh, the pungency compounds coming off that cause the tearing. And they do have beneficial effects and they will, maybe you, people have, when they cut onions, they notice that they can have that burning sensation, not only in the eyes, but in the nose. And those uh, thyrosulfonates, um, Help clear up the nasal passages so it won't necessarily cure you from the uh, the flu, but it will help you to breathe, and maybe that's where that story traces back to. There are health benefits that are well-documented and scientifically supported uh, for onion and garlic and and the alliums in general. One is is that they do have strong antiplatelet activity, Uh, The platelets are the blood clotting elements in your blood, and they help with the circulation or um, reduce the probability of blood clots, and they have a very strong effect there. Uh, Onion bulbs also carry fructans, which are complex carbohydrates that um, are a probiotic. Uh, They're beneficial for your stomach, and they help keep you regular, if I could put it that way. So there are some bona fide health benefits Scientifically demonstrated for the aliens.
1: You mentioned earlier that there are uh, onions grown on every continent in the world except Antarctica, at least so far, right? Um, Where are the major onion producers in the world? Where are are their major production areas?
2: Well, the number one producer in the world is India. India, they produce huge numbers of onions and consume huge numbers of onions. Other major production areas are the United States, um, Argentina, um, Spain, Turkey, Holland. But the crop is grown everywhere. Uh, These would be the major exporting nations. So every country produces either an onion or a shallot or or, or some uh, allium of those forms. And those are primarily consumed locally, but the big producers would be the big exporters.
1: Well, what about variants like the Vidalia onion? Is that just an interesting selection that came from the regular bulb onion lineage?
2: Um, Yes, it is. So the Vidalia onion is a a low-pungency onion that's produced in the Vidalia uh, region of Georgia, and it's a protected name. Um, uh, Actually, it traces back to a Gran X-type onion, and Gran X was a hybrid released in 1952 by the USDA, and um, it, its unique attribute is, is that in the Bidalia region, the soils have very low sulfur content. So if you take a relatively low pungency onion cultivar and grow it under uh, environmental conditions with very low sulfur, you come up with a, what's called a sweet onion. It actually doesn't have any more sugar than any other onion, but it has much less of that pungency compounds. So the Bidalia is a, a special, onion in a special production region that has uh, enjoyed name recognition. It's a very good onion. If you wanted to cook with it, it probably is not, it's not pungent enough uh, because you want that flavor of cooking. but as a fresh onion, it's wonderful. And you'll see that around Maui sweets from um, Hawaii, uh, Walla Walla sweet from Washington, uh, California sweets. Uh, so th- th- these names go, come in are they're, they're unique types of the bulb onion.
1: That's really cool. I didn't know, but a great example of G by E, right? <laughs> um,
2: exactly. Yeah. Um, and so if you take granix, the Vidalia onion type, and you grow it under a higher sulfur soil, you will get a more pungent onion.
1: Well, that's really cool. I'm learning so much in this particular episode. So we're speaking with Dr. Michael Havey. He's with the USDA ARS and the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Wisconsin. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute.
3: Not to sound like a broken record, but science needs you. Uh, Sorry about the archaic reference. The broken record refers to the naugahyde or vinyl disc, ingrained with little bumps in the grooves that would be translated to vibration with a needle or diamond stylus if you're an audiophile like me, then electronically transduced into audible sound. The broken record implies a physical defect in the integrity of the groove that would create what we colloquially refer to as SKIPPING! It was a phenomenon overcome by strategically placing a dime on the stylus arm. But I digress. Science needs you and your participation. Despite what pundits, politicians, and our neighbors tell us, the COVID-19 virus did not magically disappear the day after the election in the USA. In fact, the numbers are higher than ever. This indicates that the public continues to live in science denial, as well as pandemic fatigue. It's more important than ever that you inform yourself about the pandemic from credible sources and step into conversations countering disinformation. Write, speak, do interpretive dance, engage in pantomime, Write graffiti, whatever it takes to share the beautiful information about science in an effort to save lives. Well, maybe skip the pantomime. The point is simple. The glacial, glazed-over, non-excitement of incremental scientific gains doesn't grab headlines like celebrity or political hyperbole. You need to fix that by sharing the truth that science gives us. And do it in creative and innovative ways. Always taking the high road and sharing your sources. It's on all of us to write the growing titanic of scientific COVID-19 information as it navigates the sea of treacherous disinformation that costs lives and damages economies. Now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Havey, who's with the USDA ARS in the Department of Horticulture at the University of Wisconsin. And he's a prolific onion breeder and an expert in onions. And so we're talking about the modern improvement as well as where it came from. And so if we're talking about modern onion improvement where are the major breeding programs and what are the traits that breeders are really looking for in selection?
2: Yeah, most of the, uh, of the breeding effort in onion now is in the private sector, seed companies that are producing either open pollinated populations or more commonly hybrids. Um, in the public sector, there are programs in uh, Japan, in Holland and then in the United States here at New Mexico State University Uh, with Chris Kramer, uh, my colleague Erwin Goldman at the University of Wisconsin, and then my program are the main onion breeding programs in the world. And the traits that we're all most interested in, the number one is um, um, disease and insect resistance. Uh, Due to climate change, uh, higher humidities, warmer temperatures, we're seeing more disease pressure and insect pressure. So we're focusing on developing and identifying natural sources of resistance to diseases and insects. Um, A big push in the United States, at least, has been a lower pungency onion, like the Vidalia Vidalia that we talked about, um, because people are eating more fresh onion, salad bars, maybe on submarine sandwiches, um, that uh, breeding of lower pungency onions is, is for fresh consumption. It's been a big push. Uh, but if you go outside the United States, uh, really pungent onions are, are the, the main trade. And so uh, this is a special focus that, that North Americans seem to want. But again, we're looking at uh, major traits, uh, good seed production, uh, generally round shapes, although there are flatter onions like the Vidalia that are popular, but most consumers in most markets want a round onion. In the United States, a bigger onion has more value than a smaller onion. If you get to India and Europe, you'll see much smaller onions are the norm for those markets. And then uh, other things such as the colors, white, red, yellow onions, just a few gene differences, um, conditioning, the bulk color, the background genetics is all the same. Um, and so these are the major um, foci towards specific market classes and market niches.
1: Well, it seems as, as a breeder that one of the big impediments of breeding onions is this massive genome. And even though it's organized into just a couple of chromosomes, seven chromosomes, it um, can you tell me about the genome itself? You know, what is it that makes up the, the rest of that, that real estate that not, isn't necessarily genes? And how does that uh, contribute to limit traditional breeding efforts?
2: So the onion genome is enormous. It's six times bigger than the human genome. There's no evidence of polyploidy, meaning multiple duplications of the entire genome. The chromosomes are huge, and maybe many of the listeners looked at onion chromosomes in their basic biology class because they are so big. There's no evidence of more genes. It has the same number of genes as any other plant with much smaller genomes. And what's happened is is that probably long, long, long ago, maybe even before domestication, Onion went through an explosion, the onion genome experienced an explosion of retroviral elements. These are um, viral elements that are copy themselves and insert in the genome, and then significantly increase the size of the genome. So the chromosomes today of onion are really just isolated genes in a sea of these old repetitive elements. It happened long enough ago that they're, they're difficult to... Um, identify, they're just pieces of them now, so they've deteriorated in their sequence over, over, the, over thousands of years. But the genome is enormous, as I said, six times bigger than humans, but no greater number of genes and um, um, no landmarks of any recent um, genome size increase through polyploidization or uh, a recent retroviral explosion.
1: Uh, what is that size in gigabases?
2: Okay. Um, one C, which would be the haploid component is 16 gigabases. Uh, whereas the human genome is six gigabases.
1: So. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty big difference. Cause yeah. you know, we, back in 2000 and, uh, 10, 11, you know, uh, we worked with the strawberry genome project and that thing is about 240 megabases. So, you're looking at something that is what 48 times bigger? It, yeah, I guess that would be right. Yeah, I mean, it's just massively different in terms of the size of the genome, but with the same number of genes. That's right. Yeah. So, well, well what are some of the other factors that affect the speed of onion breeding?
2: Well, the main challenge to, to genetic progress in onion is its biennial life cycle. So, What that means is it takes two years to complete one generation. And so if the first year we plant the seed to produce bulbs, those bulbs are harvested, they have to be uh, treated with cold temperature for vernalization, planted the following year for seed production. And this biannual life cycle does slow down um, genetic progress significantly. And there are large efforts at trying to annualize that cycle um, that we can um, produce seed in, in, in a single year. And in some cases that can be done. The problem is, is that you don't uh, have a bulb. You only have a small plant that looks more like a leak than a, a bulb. And in so since the product of commerce is the bulb, we need to look at it, evaluate it, make sure it's the uh, correct type. And if you're an annual cycle, it's difficult to do that. So I've been breeding onions for 32 years, and I just accepted the fact I've had 16 generations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's better than chestnut trees or something, or you know, it's yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> it it always can be worse. So, <laughs> well, uh, um, what about molecular markers? Are there different traits that you're following that give you a little bit of assistance in maybe hastening the production of n- new advanced selections?
2: Um, yes, molecular markers are now widely used in onion breeding. We use them in my lab, and, and both in both, also in the, in the other public or private um, programs, re- breeding programs. We use them for uh, male sterility. Uh, onion hybrid onion seed is produced using systems of cytoplasmic male sterility. We have markers to classify not only the cytoplasm, but the nuclear genotype required for male uh, sterility. Um, we use them to mark um, specific bulb color genes, pungency genes, uh, and then a lot of work on disease resistances and insect resistances, um, because those are relatively expensive to evaluate. Bulb color, you you can grow the onion and look at it, but when you screen for uh, various uh, disease and insect resistances, it's nice to have a molecular marker that you can be sure that chromosome region is there. So molecular markers are widely used in onion breeding.
1: How about genome-wide selection? Is that something that's alive and well in the public breeding programs?
2: I wish it were um, that we don't have a sequence of onion due to the fact that its genome is is so enormous that um, um, genome-wide selection uh, doesn't require a sequence, but it's much more um, efficient if we have a sequence so that we can uh, generate lots of markers by uh, sequencing, uh, assemble them back to the reference sequence, and then have an idea of the causal genes. So um, genome-wide selection has great potential in onion. Um, it hasn't been realized yet. I'm optimistic that maybe we'll have a sequence in the next uh, five, ten years. And then I think you'll see an explosion of these uh, approaches. Of uh, evaluating large numbers of populations for unique attributes and traits.
1: Yeah, I, th- I see a lot there. And what what has been the big inhibition towards the genome sequencing? Is it really just the size, or is it because it still is considered kind of a minor crop? That's a major, you know, commodity.
2: Um, the size is, has been the main uh, challenge, although. Uh, Genomes of equal size to onions, such as the pine genome have been sequenced. Um, it's been now with longer read technologies that uh, will allow for a better assembly. When you have these gene islands in this sea of sort of degraded, repetitive elements, it was a, it's difficult to assemble the sequence through rel- when you have relatively short reads. Now there are long read technologies that would allow a better assembly. There have been a couple of efforts uh, to sequence onion, uh, one in Holland and and another in South Korea. Both of those were a public-private collaboration, and the sequence has not been released because of the private sector um, wanting to keep the sequence proprietary. But I look to the future with sequencing costs coming down, uh, assembly becoming easier, that we should have a, a sequence of the huge hunt huge onion genome in the next, like I said, five, 10 years, I'm going to retire soon. So I'll be a spectator on this, but it will revolutionize onion breeding because then we'll really be able to not only not use just molecular markers, tagging specific genes, but get to the causal genes. And so we know exactly what diseases, what uh, uh, insect resistances are present. And, and and allowing us to shuffle those genes and move them into new populations much more efficient. So, in answer to your question, the genome sequence is not available yet, but hang on, it's coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, the the ability to sequence genomes is getting better and better. But at least if you could sequence the gene space of an onion, even if you could just you know filter out all the transposons and stuff, maybe you wouldn't get an assembly and a, you know good assembly, but at least you'd get a parts list. Yes, definitely.
2: And also that that has been a major effort sequencing cDNAs, the expressed regions of the genome. And and there have been some very deep sequencing efforts, but any type of an assembly that you would use uh, to efficiently apply GWAS, uh, we're not there
1: yet. Well, a few years ago, I remember reading about the, maybe it's a Japanese effort to uh, remove the genes or suppress the genes that contribute to the eye burning and the tearing and all that good stuff. Well, what is that about? Yeah,
2: so that was a fascinating study by the Japanese. So um, when when you cut an onion, and you know, when people at a home are chopping an onion, you'll notice, uh, everybody's noticed the tearing effect. So what's happening there is, is that there's a volatile thiosulfonate that it's actually a sulfenic acid that is being released and it condenses on your eye and produces an acid and that causes the burning. The Japanese discovered that there was a specific enzyme that caused or produced this lacrimatory or tearing factor of onion. And that opened the door to knocking out that specific enzyme and thus producing a tearless onion. I would say that tearing is the number one consumer complaint with onion, and so it would be a value-added product. The cool thing about it was is, is that um, a group in New Zealand used a transgenic approach to knock out the gene responsible for the tearing factor, found that it improved that it was a tearless onion. It didn't incite tearing when it was chopped. But also, because it's not producing the tearing compound, it was producing more of the health-beneficial thiosulfonates. So not only was it a tearless onion, it was healthier for you. So that was a big thing. And you may have remembered, Kevin, at the meeting that we were at in Savannah. There was a lot of talk about that. Unfortunately, it was never commercialized for a couple of reasons. One, it was... um, There's a high cost associated with uh, regulation review and licensing of transgenic plants and it may not offset the value of the uh, of the commodity or the value-added aspects of that uh, tearless onion and a second issue was is that many uh, processors uh, and growers processors and shippers were a little bit afraid (laughs) of a transgenic onion because of consumer reluctance. And so that uh, was a great idea, but it never made the market. And uh, and so it, is, it has um, um, disappeared.
1: That's horrible. You know, it's why we can't have nice things, right? Right. But <laughs> well, what, what, what about gene editing? Can they do it with gene editing?
2: Yeah, that's actually a project in my lab now in collaboration with Dr. Patrick Kreisen at the University of Wisconsin, is is that we're trying to use the CRISPR-Cas9 system to knock out LFS, the lacrimonitory factor synthase gene that's responsible for the tearing effect. And that's a targeted gene approach. um, um, And um, theoretically, uh, we should be able to knock out. There's more than one copy of LFS, but they're highly similar. So we should be able to knock them both out efficiently. Uh, It's just mute. It's just knocking out a gene. There's no foreign DNA in it. and So we're optimistic that that may produce a tearless onion that ultimately will uh, not require great amounts of regulations and licensing and ultimately uh, produce that value added product, which I think the consumers will enjoy having an onion that still tastes good, is still healthy, but doesn't cause the tearing effect.
1: That's really great. Is there any other effort that you're aware of in gene editing or transgenics in onion?
2: There are no efforts in transgenics, to my knowledge, anywhere in the world, other than maybe just uh, proof of concept uh, that some gene is responsible for a specific trait or something, but no effort to commercialize any transgenic onion products. And there are no transgenic Uh, onions grown anywhere in the world. And so they're not in the marketplace. There are efforts with using CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to um, modify certain genes. And and that has great potential. And if I could give uh, an example quickly, uh, we know many of the genes that are conditioning bulk colors. and um, It would be um, relatively straightforward to take, let's say, a hybrid a yellow hybrid that you know how to produce seed on. It has a great market. It's a great onion. And change the sequence or knock out it to make a white onion or a red onion. And so some of the lines and, and types that we have now, already in production, we could develop very efficiently, avoiding that biennial life cycle, uh, new variants of them um, through gene editing. But over the long term, I what I'd be most excited about is approaches to increase the amount of disease and insect resistance that uh, we need given uh, climate change and, and the, the, uh, the environmental changes that are occurring in major production regions, such as India, uh, where uh, water is becoming a big issue, salinization of water in Bangladesh uh, and in the Western United States. Uh, more efficient water use um, to avoid uh, excessive irrigation. These are serious problems for the future that we could start to begin to address using uh, gene editing approaches. So I'm really excited about that. Well,
1: this has been really fascinating. I've, I've learned a lot from this particular episode. If people wanted to learn more about onions or maybe about your work, is there a good place that you could direct them to online? Well, there's a
2: couple places to go uh, one is the website of the national onion association the noa they have some a lot of information about onion in general um, different types cooking production information and then they can also visit the website of my laboratory which is um, Havy lab all one word uh, uh, at, uh dot hort h-o-r-t dot dot edu um just search for Haby Lab; um, it'll come up. And then uh, some of our experiments and results are are uh, posted there. Germplasm releases, uh, scientific results as well.
1: Well, I'll definitely follow because especially the work you're doing with uh, Dr. Kreis and um, I, you know, I know Patrick pretty well. So it's it really exciting to know that that's happening. So you know, best wishes in everything you're doing, and look forward to the next generation of onions. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write us a review on iTunes or any place where you consume podcast medium. Our numbers continue to rise, and that's because of an audience that uh, is weekly loyal and telling friends of the cool things we can do with biotechnology for people and a planet. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulton and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast.